0: To, just to start with. The first one is um, uh, I've been, um, uh, we're in a community of people who are fairly honest with their thoughts and they were just concerned about the inner Steve Irwin that I might be channeling this morning. So um, uh, so if you just think of a lizard on my shoulder that might put you in space or something, I don't know. What can I say? I, look, I just get up, pick up the next shirt and put it on. So uh, get over how people look, stop worrying about that. Second thing to say, it is uh, we're coming into Australia Day, and it'd be hard for you to not be aware. I dare say that this is a time, often of uh, very heightened emotions. Uh, there is a growing division that's emerging in our country and other countries as well. And can I please just encourage you, uh, if you love the Lord Jesus, to be a person of peace. Um, there is much that we need to hear about the hurts uh, th- that have been, that are there, that are real. Um, But we are now together in this. Uh, We've been uh, an ethnic, uh, multicultural community for a long, long time now. We need to work out how to move forward. And the key to that will be people who listen well, understand, and are able to bring peace into the mix of it all. So can I encourage you to be that, uh, especially over this time. let's pray now. I want to consider what is deeply important uh, to consider together this issue of uh, what is good news about the things of God. So how about we pray as we wrestle with this. Our great God, we're conscious that um, uh, there is much in our world that is difficult and painful and hurtful and hard. And Lord, we ask God, please, at this time, for healing. But we also ask right at this moment, that you might help us reflect well on the big issues of life, the bigger issues of life, dare I say. The issues of being in relationship with you, the God of the universe, what that looks like, what that means. Uh, Please help us to think carefully about these things and please help me to speak well, speak truth, uh, speak in a way that engages uh, and please use all of this to your honour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you're finding this a good time. I've heard a number of people say they are finding it helpful. It's an interesting series to consider. What is it that might make God good news if it were true of him? And it's given people free reign to just consider, yeah, what would I like to believe about God that I would find good news? Now, that's a really helpful process to do because I'm convinced God is good news. I'm convinced that what the Bible brings to us, what the person of Jesus brings to us, uh, is news that is very good. And it is interesting to reflect on what we might think is good news about if there is a God and what the Bible says and see if they disconnect and why they disconnect. It's an important process to go through, especially when you come to this issue, which I'm going to suggest is the issue of judgment, it's interesting a bunch of responses came around the topic of judgment but they were almost opposite to each other so some people said this uh, god would be good news if he just let everybody into heaven if there was no judgment this is the kind of john lennon answer almost i think you know did you know it's the 50th anniversary this year of the john lennon song imagine now that tells you something about the significance of a song when people measure it by the years after it was, uh, came out. But John Lennon's song, Imagine, uh, 50 year anniversary, he was one of the Beatles in case you're not aware. And um, uh, John Lennon, remember the first words of John Lennon's song, Imagine? Imagine there's no heaven. Uh, it's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine there's no judgment, there's no consequences, there's nothing to come after this life. Now he cast that, of course, as a dream that would be a wonderful dream and how it would liberate people. And there's a sense in which this answer, uh, if God would be good news if if there were no hell, in fact someone said that, if there were no hell below us. Someone said it would be good news if he guaranteed that we all went to heaven, there was no judgment. Now you can see this, you can understand why people would come to this answer, it's the compassionate answer. It's the answer that kind of is driven by a desire that no one suffers. The concept of hell is horrific in many ways, isn't it? That uh, the thought that some might suffer. But others said almost the exact opposite. Others said it'll be good news if God judged evil people. Good news if there is no judgment. Good news if there is judgment, if God judged those people that were evil. And it was couched like this. If the bad, God would be good news if he took the bad people out of the world. Another person said, got to be good news if people got what they deserved. Now you can understand people landing on this answer. That they want the world cleaned up. They want the bad people taken out. They want peace to reign. And they want justice to be done. So compassion Justice, the two kinds of answers that lead in somewhat different directions for people in a popular sense. Do you see yourself in either of those answers? Do you see yourself, yeah, the thought of hell and judgment, I wish everyone would just... Or do you see yourself, no, justice needs to be done and bad people need... Do you see yourself in either of those answers? Can you see a problem though? Because what you have is if you go out there and do a popular analysis and you do a kind of survey, you end up with completely contradictory answers and where do you land? What is the truth? What do you make of this? And I want to engage with that today. What I want to offer is that the Bible's answer is that neither is good news. Now, I know people have offered these answers and I think there's a great opportunity for discussion together and I want to present this as a piece of this discussion But I want to give you reasons why I think the Bible says neither is good news. There's actually a better answer. There's actually something far better, that's far better news about the way God is towards us. That captures up compassion without leaving behind justice, honours justice. It's an extraordinary answer that you just cannot get in any other place. The Bible is remarkable in this and if you've not read it, we do want to keep encouraging you to do it. Uh, The way I want to get there is actually by looking at a piece of the Bible, I want to look at what Jesus teaches uh, in what Brie read for us in Luke chapter 18. And we're doing this from a particular Gospel and one of the accounts of Jesus' life. One of the unique things again about the Christian faith is that it has these historical documents, four of them, that give you an insight into the person of Jesus And they're carefully researched, this one is carefully researched by a medical doctor in the ancient world who put his mind to all the evidences and has given us a report. But you don't need to rely on schoolyard myths, you don't need to rely on the media and how they think about these things. You can go straight back to the source and discover for yourself the person of Jesus and what he is actually like and it's life-changing. And so we're encouraging you to go through this gospel and we're giving them away for free. And to help us in doing that, we're picking out little passages from it over over these couple of weeks. And I want to pick up that Luke chapter 18 one. It's a passage where Jesus tells a story about two men who go up to the temple to pray. Um, They go up to the temple to pray, um, a good man and a bad man. Uh, One is a Pharisee, one is a tax collector. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. One of them gives thanks that he's a good man. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robber, evildoer, or adulterer. I'm not that. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I have away. Uh, He's a generous man. Is the point that he's making there in some measure. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You've got a good man and a bad man come to the temple to pray. Now, Jesus tells this story to make a point that the truth about the way God works is surprising. Actually, I'm going to suggest to you today it's shocking. And in fact, and it, the shock of it is important to embrace because that shows how good the news of the Christian faith actually is. And so it's important that we appreciate the shock. And if I do my job well, you will be shocked. That's my aim. And I just want to say that because it won't be my fault that you're feeling shocked. It'll be the Bible's fault, so just get that right. I want to do three things. I want to take you through an assumption that's there in the story that Jesus tells. And then I want to consider the point of the story... That the wrong man gets accepted by God and then I want to look at how. How is it that the wrong man gets accepted and how is that good news? Let me take you first then through the assumption. The assumption that's clearly evident in the story Jesus tells is that there will be a judgment. He tells the story about two men wanting to get right with God. They both come to the temple to pray It's an assumption that the men in the story have because it's an assumption Jesus himself operated with. Now that should be obvious, but let me bring it to the surface. Uh, Jesus teaches about final judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. Now that is often surprising for people because he is clearly a man of great love, care and compassion. There's a warmth to Jesus that's quite remarkable. Which means in our modern world, he should be the person who least talks about final judgment. But it's not the case, it's front and centre. And when he speaks about it, he speaks about it with great seriousness. In fact, he has tears in his eyes on one occasion when he comes to Jerusalem, the capital of the people that he's working amongst the Jews, he comes to Jerusalem and he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling and now judgment will come upon you. But he does this Not in any sense of joy, but he cries, there's tears in his eyes as he does it. Because the idea of judgment as Jesus presents it to us is dreadful. It really is terrifying. But you know, something else comes through in Jesus' teaching on judgment. And the whole Bible, I might add. It is that judgment actually is good news. Now I get this, this can seem surprising and shocking, especially if you kind of a person who has come along today having thought that good news would be that everyone's led into heaven, there is no hell, there's no judgment. So it can be shocking to hear, actually know, that the Bible is presenting judgment as good news. So it does need some explaining. Let me explain it to you by talking about parenting. Now many of us are parents, but if you're not a parent, you have almost universally been parented. Am I right? We've all got parents somehow or another, or had them. So you know what it is to have been parented. Imagine the world of parenting, where there's no punishment in the household. Imagine where there's no time out, there's no sent to your room. Yeah, sure, let's not smack with wooden spoons and so on, but no punishment at all. Uh, There's no discipline. Imagine a world where the eldest child... Pinches the youngest child until the youngest child screams and with a smile on their face. And imagine the parents who smile back and say, We love you, we're for you, whatever you do, beautiful together. Imagine how beautiful family life would be in that kind of setting, yes? Is someone nodding? <laughs> no. It'd be horrific, wouldn't it? It'd be horrific. What happens? You would be saying something to the child and you'd be saying something to the younger one who's been abused by the elder. You'd be saying to the child that you can behave however you want. It doesn't matter how you behave. We will always accept you and endorse you. And you'd be saying to the youngest, you're on your own. In this family, you're on your own. It's dog eat dog. It's strong versus weak. So get up, get tough. Get tough. But you'd also be saying to the youngest child, there's no justice, there's no righting of wrongs, you're alone. And the consequence, I mean, psychologists are telling us that there's actually a correlation in families without kind of discipline. There's a correlation that uh, children who grow up in that environment actually grow up uh, more anxious, There's a destabilising that comes into the psychology of the life of a child that is interesting, the correlation that occurs here. It's disturbing and concerning. Kids end up broken because we were made for justice. We're not just animals. Humans are different. Punishments, just punishments, strengthen our sense of who we are. Now, I'm not suggesting in this that it's as simple as we punish our kids, therefore God should punish us by sending us to hell. There's some obvious differences there, aren't there? Uh, in that, um, uh, if you punish a child appropriate to the level of responsibility, which would be light and careful, it's not the same. Th- but let me suggest this there are differences, but the differences only make things more serious. We are not kids, we're adults we make more serious decisions, we don't make childish mistakes, we are far more responsible and far more accountable because we're adults. You punish a child appropriate to their level of responsibility, how much more ought an adult be held accountable for their choices. A man, look, I'm sorry if this, I I don't mean to trigger any uh, grief and hurt you, but a man abuses a child, destroys the child's life. And I know some of you have suffered this. A community that merely smiles at the man's error and doesn't punish him or hold him to account isn't more enlightened, it isn't more loving, it's a sick society. And it's cruel, actually, to the child, to the victim. And cruel to the abuser. It fails to treat him as a morally accountable person. You know, in the world of animals, we accept that the stronger animals kill, the weaker animals. We accept that there's a savage beauty to that. We don't try and teach, you know, there's a there's a there's a whale called the killer whale. None of us are out there trying to make it eat grass or something like this, as if it's immorally wrong for the whale to live like that. We accept that it's just an animal. And that's the law of nature, powerful over the weak, the survival of the fittest. But humans, when humans operate like animals, we are rightly outraged. When the strong simply abuse the weak or crush the weak, we are rightly outraged because we aren't merely animals. We're humans. We are something higher, not just in degree, but in kind. There is something profoundly different about humans, and so to be held accountable for immoral behavior is important to who we are. Judgment, the punishment of wrong, affirms that about humans. John Lennon's song, imagine there's no heaven or no hell below us, portrays a sense that we'd all be better off without judgment, without hell. But it is simply not the case. In history, it's not been the case. Countries led by an atheist regime where there is no recognition of an accountability beyond the grave have created the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. When you are free to live how you like, That has always meant that the strong crush the weak. And it typically means men abuse, use, control. And if they die peacefully in their beds, then their victims are forever left without justice. There is no justice in the universe. There's no objective grounding for morality. The world as we know it unravels. You know, in a world where there is evil, selfishness and abuse, you cannot avoid the fact that someone must suffer. Let me just put this together again. This, this notion is driven by a sense of compassion, a desire that no one should suffer. And there's something beautiful about that desire. But in a world where there is evil, in a world where there is greed and selfishness and abuse of others and hurt and using, um, if there is no judgment, then someone does suffer in a world where there is a you cannot avoid someone suffering. It's either the innocent, because there's no one to stand for them and fight for them and bring justice, or it's the guilty. The assumption that the Bible operates with and explicitly expresses is that God will judge, and that is good news. It's good news for the abused, it's good news for the victim, it's good news for humanity that we are moral. It, upheld. it is good news. Now this is simply just demonstrating I trust that the answer that many have offered, that it's good news that there be no hell, there be no judgement, everyone goes in it, it, driven by compassion simply fails to see the richer picture, I think. Now I'd love a discussion, I'd love to hear your thoughts but I don't think it is good news. The Bible certainly doesn't. Now this doesn't mean, though, that the Bible agrees simply with the other set of answers that were given. It doesn't mean that the good news is if God were to judge the bad people. No, no, no. This needs some care and some thought, but you don't rush from one wrong to another and think it's right. It needs some care and thought at this point. You know, uh, the thought that it would be good news if God judged the bad people in the world is often said by someone who is imagining they're not part of that group. And that needs some care. You know, the Bible affirms judgment. It says, therefore, though, that everybody's in trouble. And that is something of what's going on in this story. You see, two people come to the temple to pray. One looks good, the other looks bad. But both actually are bad. And in this story, what Jesus does is he rips the the, the lid off the human heart to see it for what it actually is. Now, our problem is that we've lived so long with the insights of Jesus into the Pharisees, we've lived so long with his analysis of the inner workings of their heart, that we think everybody saw that, but Jesus was unique in seeing that. And our problem is we now, therefore, have cast the Pharisees in a way that immediately you hear that word, you think, bad. But no, no, the Pharisees in the ancient world were good people. They were Central Coast middle class people. They were good neighbours to have. You see, he was genuinely someone who wasn't an evildoer. He wasn't a robber. He wasn't an adulterer. He he was someone that you'd be glad to live next door to because you'd be safe. You know, if your dog escaped, he'd be the man who actually goes and finds it and brings it back. You know, that front part outside your house, the lawn that's there, Uh, when he mowed his lawn, he'd mow your lawn as well. He's that kind of man. He's the man who gives away a tenth of all he gets. He's generous. He, He sacrifices for the sake of supporting the poor and the church and so on. He's a generous man. He'd be one who'd got the Order of Australia medal. He's a good man. And to everybody in the ancient world, he would portray decent, moral, upright, hard-working, reliable, faithful. He's a Central Coast person. Now, the problem with us is that we don't, we, we've seen Jesus' analysis of his heart and we've seen what truly is there and what's truly there in the heart is not so attractive. Look at the way Jesus portrays him. And I'm going to use a word just to kind of summarise this. I'm going to suggest that Jesus portrays him as othering. Doing a thing called othering. Just to give us a label to hang it on. You'll notice he comes into the temple to pray. And if you've got a Bible there to look at or just listen in. But verse 11, he stood by himself... Now, this is a story Jesus is telling. He's not saying this literally is what happened, but he's, he's trying to use imagery in the story to show us what's going on in his heart that others are not noticing. So he stands by himself, apart from others. And then he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. He references God, but that's the last time you hear about God. It's then all about him. I thank you that I'm not like other people. See, so he's othering. I'm not like robbers, evildoers, adulteries, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I have. We have another phrase for othering, which as soon as we use it, you'll you'll see the ugliness of it. So I'm trying to use a phrase that sort of gets into us a little bit easier. But the other phrase we use of the Pharisee would be self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. This is a man who is full of himself. And he sees his own righteousness by comparing himself to others. You see, he's othering. It's because he sees that he isn't the robber. He isn't the evildoer, the murderer, the adulterer. And he comes into the temple to pray, assuming that he will be right with God. And most people listening to Jesus' story would assume the same. Now, the tax collector is very different. The tax collector comes in the temple knowing he won't be right with God. He won't be accepted into heaven, if you like. He'll be judged and condemned to hell. And he's terrified. Now, again, we need a little bit of an explanation about tax collector to get the sense of the story in its first century context. The tax collector was not just a hard-working person trying to make the way in life by collecting taxes. He was... He was a traitor to his own people. In the ancient world, Israel, the Jewish people, were oppressed, were governed by the Romans. Another country had taken charge of their country. Imagine in our setting, I don't know, New Zealand has come over and ruling us. Um, But uh, we live under the rule of another. And the tax collector was a member of the Jewish people who worked for the enemy, to collect taxes for the enemy from his own people. And the thing was that they could take as much as they liked from the Jews as long as they gave the Roman overlords what the Romans wanted. They could line their pockets from defrauding people, strong-arming people, taking as much money as they wanted. This is an evil man. In the first century, tax collectors were synonymous with sinners. They were your parody of the sinner. Now, I don't know how we get the sense of it today, but it's it's like the, um, the, the, the boss of a multinational company who sets up sweat houses in third world countries and impoverishes and uses slave labor to line his own pocket and build his profits while he's left that to live in another and doesn't care for them. That's the tax collector. Now, which one would you expect if they came before God and his judgment should go home accepted by God? The Pharisee, not the tax collector. But Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified, which just means right with God, accepted by God. And that was shocking. Again, it would be like Jesus telling the story between the, you know, the hard-working Central Coast mum or dad just trying to make their way and the man who is, who's had a history of abuse. And Jesus says, which one gets right with God? And he says, the abuser, not the mum. It's shocking. But profoundly good news and let me show you why in a moment. Because before we get there, I want to, oh, it's critical that we see ourselves in all of this. There are only two kinds of people. You are either a Pharisee or a tax collector. You're either a person who looks good but isn't really, or someone who looks bad and knows you are. There's only two kinds of people in the world. A Pharisee who looks good, thinks good, but is actually corrupt when you take the lid off the heart. Or the tax collector who is bad and knows he's bad. You know, the Central Coast, most of you look very good. Most of us look good. Most of us are like the Pharisee. And let me offer why I think that's the case. And again, the discussion becomes important at this point. But as I talk with people and move around the place, I hear a lot of people lacking any urgency to explore the things of Jesus or God for a simple reason. They're convinced that if there is a God and there is one day a judgment... They'll be okay. They haven't thought about it much, but they feel they don't need to because if there is such a thing, it will be the other people who are condemned, not them. They will be safe because it's the others. Now, why? Well, because I've not robbed, well, depending how you define stealing, if you define it narrowly just to mean I've not put my hand in the till and taken money, but I've not done that. I might have stolen time, I might have stolen IP, I might have, but I've not taken something straight out. I've not stolen anything. I'm not an evildoer. I've never killed someone. And I, I'm active in the community to give and be supportive and generous. I give a tenth of all I have away. I'm like this Pharisee. And so if there is a judgment, I'll be okay. There are worse people than me out there. But what Jesus does, and he would be terrifying to move with, he rips the lid off your heart and he says, you're othering. There is a self-righteousness that's buried there where you are strengthening your sense of self by comparing yourself to others, by seeing that God ought to judge the other person those that are evil and bad, while thinking you're good and good enough. You know, Jesus tells this story to stir up the crowd around him and they got stirred. They ended up killing him. They got his message and it was deeply disturbing. But I suggest the Lord God has written this story down for us to stir us up as well. To stir up the activists who give a great deal of their time and energy to make the world a better place and do look at others with some sense of otherness. Why aren't you? How come you're not? The good and quiet people who are just getting on with life, who haven't done anything wrong. Jesus rips the lid off and says, there's something deeply stewing in the deep depths of your heart. Our problem is that we assume the self-righteous people are the ones who are the other people. We're othering again. We assume they're the churchgoers. And you would have been right. But one of the things the church has done very successfully is it export self-righteousness to the world now. And it is found everywhere. You know, if you're a right-wing voter uh, and you know that language and you feel all of that, I dare say at the moment you are fairly outraged by what's happening in American politics and you can see the hypocrisy and self-righteousness of the left and i think you'd be right but if you're a right-wing voker let me take the heart off the lid off the heart and say you're not immune to the same disease we all have this problem built into the very nature of right-wing thinking is a sense that you get what you deserve by being hard working and responsible it's called meritocracy the rule of merit but Deep in the very heart of meritocracy is self righteousness. Right wing voters have the feel of self righteousness because we've got where we've got because we worked hard. And if you worked like us, you'd get here too because the others have not. None of us are innocent. And Jesus sees it all. You know, the Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. It's a diagnosis that is deeply disturbing. It says the distance between us and God is immense. There's a disease of the heart that shows itself in the Pharisee or the tax collector, but it's the same disease. Now, I don't know what your reaction is to all of this. Well, I do know some of what it might be. But that reaction itself will be telling. Is there any outrage that you feel that Jesus might think you're part of the problem? That could be the Pharisee that's in all of us. Jesus tells a story to stir things up and it works. It's only one of the two that survives the judgment to come. Now, which one is it? It's the wrong one. It's the evil one. The guy who clearly ought not deserve it. The guy who clearly ought not be accepted by God. And that's where Christianity and Jesus is immensely good news. Because if he can be accepted, here it is, so can you. So can I. There is hope when justice does come. How? Why? Well, you see it there in his words, the tax collector's words. Let's finally look very quickly and briefly at the words of this man. Verse 13. Notice what he says. He comes and stands at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. Such was his awareness of his own fallen heart. But he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, I want you to notice two things that are not so obvious in the English translation. I'm going to give you a little bit of an original language just to make sense of this statement because it's quite profound. First thing to note, the original language actually has him say this, God have mercy on me, the sinner. He doesn't actually say a sinner, he says the sinner. It's very clear in the Greek. What is he saying? He has moved beyond othering. It's now not a sinner amongst sinners compared to other people. It's the sinner. It's just him and God. He is not thinking about anyone else anymore. He doesn't need to see anyone else. He sees his own heart, and it's him before God that he realizes the, the horror, his failure, his greed, his abuse, and he sees that that's not the the problem. Isn't the sins? It's that he is the sinner. There's a disease in his very being that's part of who he is, that he's a rebel against God. There's the first thing. He comes to that point of no longer caring where others are at. It's him under God, the sinner. Second thing, he says, have mercy on me. Now it is, I know we've come to the end and it's let you to think a little bit hard just for a moment. The word for mercy there is an unusual one in the, the original language. Uh, it's hilasthesthi. It's a very unusual word. It's not the normal one that's used in chapter, later in chapter 18. And literally it's the idea of propitiate, make propitiation, which makes no sense to you either. What is that? Let me explain it. It's a word that comes out of the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, there was the expectation that one day a year, the high priest would come and he'd enter into the temple of God, the holy, the very holy place, where there was a, a thing called the ark with a cover over it called the mercy seat. And he would sacrifice an animal after having laid hands on it. And the hands laying on the animal... Was the high priest saying, at God's behest, "I want you to, I want you to model, display the sin of the nation being put onto the head of this animal"? So he'd press his hands onto the animal to, to transfer sin of the people onto the animal. Then the animal would die, and his blood would be put on the mercy seat, so that the people could be forgiven. So that the holy God could uphold righteousness and so judge sin. But judge sin in the substitute. So that the sinner can be accepted. Now that went on for centuries. It was a day of atonement. Annually. And then Jesus comes along. And in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, he is called by this word, he is... The propitiation. He is the sacrifice that all of the Old Testament was anticipating. He is the capital S sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And in his death on the cross, it's as if God the Father presses upon his head my sin. And the sin of any who would accept Jesus onto the head of his Son. So that his death pays for my penalty so that I can go free. So that God can uphold justice and judge evil wherever it's found and yet be compassionate to people whose hearts are evil. The man says, not just have mercy brush my sin under the carpet because God can't do that. He says... Make atonement for me, God, the sinner. Take seriously sin, as I know you must. But do something to make it possible for me, the sinner, to be accepted. And God does. God comes in the person of his Son to pay such a price. And that sacrifice is costly. God dies that we might be forgiven. The true Lamb of God. You know, when you appreciate this and understand it, it is astonishing. Words fail to give proper expression to the wonder of it. What love is this, says the Bible? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The God who must judge, who must judge wrongdoing, but who recognises that wrongdoing's not out there, it's not the others, it's in all of us. What hope have we got for compassion? God, in his mercy, who is just, Romans chapter three, and the one who justifies the wicked. Astonishing news, you will never find this anywhere else except in the Christian message. Sin must be paid for, evil must be punished, But how without destroying every human who's ever lived by God himself taking that punishment in our place? You know, Jesus tells this story uh, and he does this kind of thing repeatedly of two men, a good man and a bad man, one who seems good but is really bad, the other one who's bad and looks bad is bad. And he says it's always the one who owns in humility his sin that is forgiven. It is never the self-righteous It is never the one who will not accept. But it's good news that the worst of the two is welcomed because it means there's hope for you who have seen your own heart. You know, church is not for the self-righteous. It's for the humbled. It's for the people who realise that not only are they bad, but they often look bad as well. Who can be honest about themselves, and so it is good news. Now, what do we do with all of this? First, beware the danger of romanticism, sentimentality that dismisses judgment as if any kind of suffering would be beyond love. No, 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 no. It devastates okay. the world. Well, oh, well, This on the web for Hey Siri, any kind of suffering would be beyond love. <laughs> Someone later can tell me how to fix that. (laughs) Chase it up on the web, see what you find, I'll be very interested. Can I say though, beware of romanticism. To remove any notion of judgment is devastating. It's devastating. But secondly, beware of self righteousness. Self righteousness lurks in every human heart. Have you seen it in yourself? This is a powerful, important process to go through. Have you looked inside to see it there? Because it's there. It's lurking there. If you've not seen it yet, you don't know yourself. You'll you'll see that it's there if you're tempted to think that evil people are out there. You'll see it if you think that there is a God. If there is a God, you'll surely be okay because you've not been like other people. There it is. But when you see it, there's the amazing news that God can still have you forgiven. He will judge sin, but He's done it in His substitute. And if you humble yourself like the tax collector, bow your head before God and say, God, make atonement for me, the sinner, you're forgiven you'll be accepted. You'll be welcomed into relationship with God forever because it's the humble that God is looking for. Have you done that? Have you done that? If not, I want to give you an opportunity this morning. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to pray the tax collector's prayer. I'm going to expand it a little. And I'm going to do it slowly because I want to invite you to pray it along with me. But I want you to do it thoughtfully. So, I'm going to give you a moment just now to reflect. Um, Have you seen what's in your heart? Have you realised you're either the Pharisee or the tax collector, and that your only hope is to come before God, throwing yourself on His mercy? Take a moment to reflect. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy on me, the sinner. I'm sorry that my life is not what it ought to be. I'm sorry that I've done othering. Please forgive me. I'm sorry that I've not honoured you as I ought. Please forgive me. But thank you that you have made atonement for my sin. Thank you that Jesus has died as my substitute. Please forgive me on his merits, not mine. Thank you that you have given such assurance that if we come to you humbled like this, you will embrace and accept us. Thank you for that love. Help me now live with you at the centre of my life. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and meant it, it's a very good day. It is very good news and it will change your life in wonderful ways.